from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Stripe and Plaid face off on Stripe's new product, Moneybox to launch a crowdfunding campaign, and Swiss Banker puts strip club visits on expenses. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud, and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Fintech Insider presents After Dark Ripping Up the Rulebook a special recording of Fintech Insider live from New York City, and we want you to join us. On Tuesday, May 24th, we'll be looking at DeFi, punk rock, embedded finance and hip-hop, and breaking down how they've all disrupted their industries. Head to 11fs.com forward slash afterdark for all the info and to get your free ticket. That's at 11fs.com forward slash afterdark. See you in New York. Welcome to episode 626 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Kate Moody, Global Strategy Director of Customer Experience. And I'm very excited because Kate and I have worked together for two years, and we've never been on Fintech Insider before. No, we haven't. It's very exciting. I was worried that you were avoiding me. So it's nice to nice to be doing the show together. You have been away doing, doing busy and important things. Well, yes. I suppose raising a child is vaguely important, but uh, yes, that aside... And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. So first up, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Nilixa Devlukia, founder of Payments Solved. Welcome to the show. Can you give our audience a brief reintroduction to you and to Payments Solved, please? Thank you, Benjamin, and thanks for having me on the show today. I'm Nilix Devlukia. I'm a former regulator with the FCA in the UK. I've also been head of the Open Banking Implementation Entity, and I now run my own consultancy called Payment Solve that advises on open banking, CBDC, cryptocurrencies, and generally on all matters related to payments. Fantastic. And it's another welcome return for Karen Kerrigan, Chief Operations Officer of Moneybox. Welcome back, Karen. We'll get into your news a little later in the show, but can you remind our audience a little bit about you and Moneybox, please? Yes, certainly. Um, thanks for having me. Um, as you just said, I'm CEO of Moneybox. Uh, we're a savings and investments app, which helps our customers turn their money into something greater. Uh, we launched the Moneybox app, as you're, you're probably aware, back in 2016 with what's now you know, a pretty famous feature, our roundups feature, which helped thousands of customers start investing with just their spare change. Um, but fast forward to today, and we've brought savings, investing, home buying, and retirement services together into one app. Uh, we've got about 850,000 customers, um, 3 billion AUA, uh, and 300 employees. And as you said, uh, got some pretty exciting news to share on our, uh, our latest funding round later. Fantastic. Looking forward to hearing about it. Okay, with that, let's get into the news. So first up, Stripe has launched an open banking product, sparking a Twitter taunt from Plaid's CEO. So Stripe announced an open banking product called Financial Connections late on Wednesday, which is said to enable a business to seamlessly connect to customer bank accounts, track spending patterns to reduce payout failures by 75%, and connect with 90% of all bank accounts. Plaid's CEO, Zachary Perret, suggested his company's successful onboarding solution bore an uncomfortable resemblance to Stripe's new product. Perret took to Twitter and aimed his frustration at Stripe's head of product, Jay Shah. He wrote, Wow, Jay, you took interviews with Plaid and asked probing questions multiple times over the past few years, and your team sent repeated RFPs under NDA to ask us for tons of detailed data. I wish you all the best with these products, but surprising to see the methods. Jay Shah, in return, commented that the accusation was unfounded, writing, Zach, Sorry you feel this way, but this isn't true. And I think you know that. You reached out to me repeatedly. I never reached out to you for information. So, a public spat. Um, is, is Plaid allowed to be annoyed by this? Do you think, do you think that's, that's right? What do you reckon? It's a bit awkward, isn't it? It's like watching a, a marriage break down on Twitter. It's, it's a bit bizarre. And obviously, Stripe and Plaid were, you know, weren't 
partnered in a deep way, but they were, did have some products that they seemed to be working on together. I think one of Plaid's Link products connected directly through to one of Stripe's. So they seemed to be you know, working together to some degree. Uh, and now, obviously, Stripe are, are going after that that same space that, that Plaid have owned up until this point. So, yeah, it's a very public <laughs> and quite emotional fallout. Um, it sort of seems that you know, we measure the progression of you know, fintech as an industry with lots of strategy frameworks and you know growth curves. But I wonder if the fact that we're now at the stage where big fintech fights other big fintech is a sign that we're in a new stage. You know, it's not banks fighting fintechs anymore, it's fintechs fighting each other. So yeah, it's quite quite dramatic, but I think tells a lot about the size that these two companies have got to, the fact that they're trying to eat each other's market share. What do you think, uh, Karen? Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure why uh, this is such a surprise to Platt, uh, speaking frankly. I mean, <laughs> you know, open banking is the obvious next step for, for Stripe. Um, I know it must be insanely frustrating when Stripe go into anything. It's, it's like, you know, Amazon or Google going into anything. Um, Stripe basically are the Amazon of, of payments, right? You know, the, the Bolt uh, founder Twitter spat that happened uh, not so long ago describing uh, Stripe as sort of the mob boss of, of Silicon Valley is pretty relevant here. Uh, yeah, so I, I just don't know why, um, why anyone's surprised uh yeah seems an obvious step for me um i'll be careful what i say I'm, we're a happy plaid customer here at my money box I've, I've previously been a happy stripe customer um but yeah it's not particularly surprising and elixir do you think there, there's potentially any 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 grounds here for um for for complaint i mean because you know there are you know there have been many instances in fintech of companies you know ripping off other companies' products. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's what's happened here. But do you think there might be any any reason to think that, you know, there might be anything behind this? I mean, I, I realise you can't know, but... Yeah, I think, Benjamin, it's, it's hard to say because we're seeing what's in the public domain. It feels a bit like a playground spat, doesn't it, where people have fallen out. Now, whether they've fallen out because there is something proprietary that Stripe have, have latched onto and are... Uh, putting into their own open banking ecosystem that, that Plaid also uses is something we don't have any insights or knowledge about. Um, I do find it surprising, though, that, that you know, connectivity in open banking is relatively straightforward. I'm not sure that there's that much that is proprietary about it. So, you know, it, it does confuse me as to you know, what the real beef is between these two organizations, whether it's just that, well, we were playing nicely together, you know, as of this morning, um, the Plaid website still showed a a partnership arrangement that they had with Stripe. Now, whether that's still there now, I don't know. I haven't looked. And it just feels like it's more of a, a personality issue than maybe a real you've taken our secrets issue, but I could be totally wrong. I, I just don't know. But obviously, if, if NDAs have been signed and there has been a breach of confidential information, then obviously action could be taken. It's interesting you the point you made, Kate, about, you know, does this thing become inevitable? Do we see more and more clashes as we get, you know, fin, you know fintechs becoming bigger and bigger and more successful and doing what Stripe has been doing and indeed Plaid has been doing of gradually expanding their products and they're sort of moving up and down the technology stack and inevitably starting to move into areas that, you know, adjacent areas that they previously worked with partners in. I mean, do we think we're just going to see more and more of these kind of clashes? Just maybe not all on Twitter. Yeah, well, yeah, well, especially if Elon Musk gets involved, who knows what's <laughs> going to happen on Twitter on Twitter next? But I mean, I suppose Stripe have have set themselves up with the foundation to, you know, as as Karen said, kind of move wherever they want to because they've very cleverly kind of set their their purpose as an organisation to increase the GDP of the internet. I think mm-hmm. that's their, mm-hmm. their tagline. So, you know, when you've got that as your guiding your guiding purpose, really, you can just follow follow the natural progression curve of just building, building and building. Uh, and they've obviously seen that Plaid have had success. You know, Plaid are now, they've not reached Stripe's valuation. I think Plaid are about 13 billion and Stripe are more like 95 billion, I think, at the latest latest funding round. So there is a bit of a difference, but you know, they're both big companies and they've been able to see that Plaid have been successful. So they've got the resources to go and build this. It would make sense for them to to build it and, and try and build out their empire further. And it's based on Elixir's point, you know, you don't know whether uh, there's actually a bit of a, 
a, a, a chip on on Plaid's shoulder to, mm. to some extent in that, you know, if they were in discussions with Stripe and there's a question as to whether they actually were in discussions with Stripe, have they been overlooked for, for another provider? There, there might be something there. But you would have expected Stripe either in choosing a partner or in simply product discovery for launching their open banking um, uh, uh, data utilization products to have spoken to Plaid, but probably many, many other businesses as well in, in, in the space. So yeah, but, you know, to, to Nelix's point, unless you know the actual information that's been the, the, the sort of accusing of, of utilizing, it's, it's hard to know. And given the, the, the market share that Stripe already have, if they can now assist their merchants by helping them connect to payments via open banking data, it does call into question, you know, why entities or organizations like the European Commission focus only on the, what, you know, what they call the big techs, Facebook, Google. I mean, these fintechs are actually very large organizations, substantial in their own right, and actually hold and have a lot of data as well. And open banking is all about the data. Yeah, so there's clearly a, a challenge to the regulators, isn't there, to sort of keep keep up with this, the sheer pace of change in the industry and focus on you know focus on the right on the right problems um one of the things i was interested about is was the, the sort of seemingly emotional reaction of of going public on twitter i mean is is that a well thought through rational response to um you know try and you know get other customers on side and get people thinking about plaid's advantages versus stripe or is it just a pure emotional i'm hurt i'm frustrated it's it's hard to tell i suppose the skeptical part of your brain just thinks you know what is this all a bit of a stunt you know they just decided to use you know stripe launching something to draw attention to their own offering uh i mean i guess it depends on you know whether you're wearing your skeptical hat or not i tend to be a bit more of a an optimist but yeah it does feel very emotional and i suppose we're we're not used to associating that with you know, senior executives of these organisations. But yeah, maybe it's a, a new trend. Well, I don't know if it's, it's a new trend. I mean, I think we've seen this, um, you know, over the last 10 years with, with fintechs fighting for the same space. The obvious one is, you know, the, the uh, Anne Bowden, Tom Blomfield, Monzo, Starling debacle, which, uh, which definitely hit the press in many different meme forms as well. I don't think this is anything new. And my reaction to that level of emotion in the tweet is it probably was just a reaction that if you are a Twitter user, that medium is there for you to express yourself. It may not be particularly professional, um, but it is there. Does it then result in more publicity around you know, both Stripe, Plaid and open banking? Yes, it, it probably does. Um, is all publicity good publicity? Well, t- TBD on this one. Yeah, but maybe, you know, maybe this is good for both Plaid and Stripe, right? Because it gets people thinking about their products. It's, you know, we're talking about them. Um, you know, perhaps actually it's, it's good for both these companies and, and a disadvantage to other competitors in the, in the space. Well, yeah, I suppose, you know, Karen raised the point about the Bolt Founders Twitter thread. I mean, he was talking through, you know, how Stripe in general are sort of suppressing the development of, of other competitors in this space, you know, the combination between Stripe and Y Combinator. So, yeah, I think there's it's it's one about uh, to Nelix's point. You know, there's lots of focus on big tech companies. Maybe there needs to be more focus on management of some of these fintechs that are now reaching the stage of growth of almost challenging some of these big tech companies. I think we've been used to treating them with, uh, you know, we've been used to giving them, I think, the benefit of the doubt and assuming that they're positive actors who are changing the ecosystem for good. And I think most of them are, but I think maybe we're reaching a new stage of, of needing to hold them to account a bit better. You know, when you look at payments and open banking, it's about getting money to merchants. Stripe has a massive customer base of merchants. So how does that, imp- you know, the plans of this world are, are quite large they're going to continue to exist. But what does that mean for the existing fintechs or any new-to-market firms who want to enter this space? When you have such a powerful player like Stripe entering uh, with, you know, what must be quite an advantage. It certainly starts to crowd crowd the space out, doesn't it, for, for more competition. I suppose it's, it's that perennial question of when does when does the plucky startup turn into the sort of monopolist um, that, that needs to needs to be regulated? 
Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that Moneybox has announced a crowdfunding campaign. Um, so <laughs> Digital Wealth Manager uh, Moneybox uh, has announced its second crowdfunding campaign, which is set to launch on May the 10th. Um, Moneybox launched in 2016, as Karen told us earlier, offering a host of financial services aimed at individuals to help them save, invest, um, achieve big ticket purchases such as homes and planning for retirement. The crowdfunding campaign comes on the back of the company's Series D funding round last month, which saw the company raise £35 million, led by existing investor Fidelity International Strategic Ventures. Moneybox's previous crowdfunding campaign saw a record-breaking 16,000 investors raise $7 million in one of Crowdcube's most popular campaigns ever. Um, Karen, we're going to come to you first on this, obviously. Super exciting um, times for Moneybox. Why was this the right time for another crowdfunding campaign? Well, I mean, I think it was um, to take it that that question back a step. Uh, you know, the, the primary question is why was it the right time for a for a, for, a, for a fundraise? Um, this will be our second crowdfund, as you said, and um, for us, each fundraise um, involves a crowd part, or certainly, you know, was last time, is this time, and and potentially will be if we if we raise money again. It was, you know, the, the last crowdfund was before my time, um, but it was an amazing experience for the people involved here. Um, we, you know, as you said, had almost seventeen thousand people invest. Um, a huge amount of money, seven million dollars, seven million pounds, not seven million dollars, uh, and that came in in, in forty eight hours. Um, so you know you see that number ticking up quite quickly. And the majority of those customers, uh, well, the majority of those investors are customers. And so to actually have that level of support for what we're building from the people that use it was just a huge endorsement for us. Now what we've seen since then through our investor forum is a community that we can connect with. Um, you know, either through testing ideas, getting feedback on things that we've launched, sending out surveys, um, and just and just taking feedback directly for our customers in, in, in a really um, intelligent way. Um, so, you know, I suppose that's the 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 sort of reason behind crowdfunding. But I suppose why did we do another raise? Um, and the short answer is is growth and opportunity. You know, we have grown a lot in the last couple of years since our Series C, which as I said involved a crowdfund as well, doubled the customer base, increased AOA by almost five hundred percent. And, and growing the team quite significantly to about 300 people, as I said before, with a clear uh, UK leader in lifetime ISAs. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the type of ISA product, which enables you to buy your first home with support from the government. And also off the back of that, launched a free mortgage service, uh, which is proving to be very, very popular with those, those ISA customers. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think at, at this point, um, yes, the, the market is, is becoming extremely um, busy in, in terms of wealth management. Um, but we are the number one, uh, so I think number two uh, wealth provider in the UK by the number of customers and definitely think that this is our time to invest in a further stage of growth. What are your, what are your plans with the, with the money? So obviously there's a number of things you could do with it. What are, what are your plans um, to the extent that you can share them with all of our listeners? Yeah, so so funds from our Series D more broadly, which in, include the crowd funds. So we got uh, 35 million from our existing in, investors, um, Fidelity, as you said, both CMP, Breegold, so Capital Birder, uh, and we've got a couple of other investors that that came in in this round. Um, and then you know obviously the crowd fund as well um, will be used to uh, accelerate our plans to um, deliver more products and services uh, that we know will enhance our customers' wealth management goals. Um, we want people to to be able to build their wealth uh, with confidence, and what that means is is to build a, uh, a, you know, a financial planning tool uh, which binds you know, our saving, investing, retirement and home buying, home buying products in a way that is coherent for a more mass market customer. Um, previously, you know, this area of wealth management really wasn't accessible um, to the majority of the population, you know, what I'd call sort of the bottom 98% of, of the population in, in terms of, of, of wealth don't have access to, to wealth management. And I think we've seen huge interest, um, particularly over the pandemic period, Period where really the effect has been for people to engage more in how their money is working. Um, so yeah, I think one of our, our, our goals will be actually to combine the, the proposition a bit more um, to make it more uh, usable and actually take it to the, the next level in terms of wealth management, um, but also to enhance our, our investing proposition. Um, as I said at the beginning, you know, we started off as, as a roundups app. It was, you know, put your spare change into your ISA. Um, we've since built out, you know, savings, um, retirement and, and home buying. But in 
investing is still pretty core to where we see the long-term value, both for our customers uh, and for our and for our business. Um, investing has become extremely popular on the retail side over the last couple of years. Um, so seeing what that means in a money box context uh, is is definitely something that we would uh, you know put some of that money into into growing. Kate, what's your um, view on this? We've seen quite a few, uh, you know, fintechs raising funds directly from their customers, creating, as Karen said, a sort of more engaged community of, of customers. It always strikes me as a win-win. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's something that we advocate really, really strongly at 11FS is as you're building out your product, you need to be maintaining a kind of really close relationship with your customers. You need to be involving them in the build-out of your product and helping to leverage their insight and their actual usage of your product to make better decisions and to focus your roadmap. So, yeah, we've heard lots of people who have gone down the crowdfunding route cite that as a really one of the key drivers for for making that decision to be able to build that uh, reciprocal relationship with their with their customers. So, yeah, fantastic to hear you talking about it in that way, Karen. Like, I'm sure, you know, given the way that your product has grown today, you know, obviously you can see that customers are at the core of what you're doing so so that's very exciting is it was it your typical customers who were participating in the in the crowdfunding or could you see a distinct pattern was it was it a particular type of investor or are they really just very mainstream very um just look like all of your customers was, was there a sort of particular group that signed up no, very, very mainstream in terms of, you know, our, our mainstream Moneybox customer. It really was our customers. And yes, there was a, a, a broader set of, of people, of, of retail investors that came into Moneybox and became aware of Moneybox because of the, of, of the crowdfund. Um, and, you know, the hope is obviously that they turn into customers, the investors that become aware of you through that route. You may remember that the last time I was, I was on the show, I, I was at Cedars, which is, uh, you know, one of the, um, the big crowd, crowdfunding platforms. And I was at that business for, for seven and a half years. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of businesses do what Moneybox, um, has, has done, um, you know, is, is doing it now, now and has done before. And time and time again, we see these sort of customers voting with their wallets effectively. And as soon as you do that as a customer, you become more invested in the product. You become an ambassador. You talk about the business. So not only are you get you as a business getting feedback from your customers on a live basis because actually they want to see their investment grow, um, but you're also getting a lot of free PR from from those customers. So yeah, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for this type of financing. How has the um, how the sort of economic conditions in the market started to sort of change the market? Because obviously, the, but the pandemic sort of. Boosted retail investing because suddenly you know a lot of people are at home. Some people had their living costs fell because they weren't traveling so much and they had more time on their hands. And a lot of people sort of sorted out their investments, and you saw a bit of a you know a, a boom in retail investing. But now we've got this cost of living crisis, you know, driven by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, costs going up. Um, is that starting to creep through? Are you starting to see different behaviour from from customers? Well, I'll, I'll take the first sort of chapter first. Um, I, over the pandemic, yes, we saw a lot more people become interested in, in investing. Now, primarily, that was, and sort of certainly at the level that hit the press and was more trendy to talk about was the more high risk speculative types of investing. So you have your, you know, the, the, the GameStop, uh, fiasco, the, uh, the, the boom in crypto that happened over, over the pandemic. Um, Moneybox very much isn't, um, that type of, of business. We are definitely build, about building long-term wealth so that you can, you know, retire in happiness and, and have a house and have enough savings to be able to go on nice holidays. Um, so our, the challenge for us, I suppose, is harnessing that energy around investing and people's interest in investing, uh, but making sure this is really about investing and not trading. So I think that we have definitely seen an uptick on people being interested in their investing product, hence why we want to, to, to roll ours out. In terms of the cost of, of, of living a crisis, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, not only we have uh, we have investing accounts, but we also have, have savings accounts. And, you know, the savings rates have obviously gone up in, in recent weeks, which has been um, both helpful for, for us as a, as a business, but also brilliant that we can offer uh, the those types of rates um, to our customers. So we've definitely seen an uptick in the level that people are putting into their savings accounts. Um, the market volatility that comes with Ukraine is always a very interesting one in terms of how to, to message. And I think, you know, we are, our, our philosophy with everything is education, education, education. You don't want your customers really to be selling out at, at the bottom of the market. At the same time, we're not a, an advisory platform. So getting that balance right um, has, has definitely been, uh, been an experience. Um, we have had market volatility 
volatility before, but obviously going into uh, a, a war situation um, is, 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 is a next level. And then just in the, the last thing I say, I suppose, is in terms of actually just uh, in, investing behavior, what we are seeing is that people's sort of standard uh, deposits that they make into the platform, into either savings or vestings accounts, are broadly the same. You know, they're broadly keeping um, that the same money going in just to, if someone wants to save, you know, for, as I said, their, their holiday or their house or whatever it is, they will continue to do that. I think where we've seen more um, unpredictable behavior is actually in the one-offs. People are more addressing, you know, wh- what am I doing with my one-offs, my more kind of optional payments that top up my um, allocated amount for the month or the week or, or whatever. Interesting. Nelixir, I'd love to bring you in and, and, and hear your perspective on, on, the, on this story and, you know, maybe I don't know, implications for sort of UK fintech more widely is this, you know, do you think we'll see more UK fintechs using this funding path? Is this a good sign for, for UK fintechs? I think it's excellent that UK fintechs have a whole range of funding options available to them. It's a thriving sector. And obviously, congratulations to Karen and the team um, for their growth and their continued growth. I think that in particular, if we look at the, the crypto space, I do think that we need government to actually move forward with a regulatory framework that helps that part of the industry because, you know, it's referred to as the Wild West. There are firms out there who are providing services to consumers who want to be active in this space. I think that's the thing is that people see crypto assets, they want to be active. And we've had um, a government consultation on stable coins that had feedback last month. We had um, the Chancellor. I know, was it John Glenn or Rishi Sunak? I can't remember now. Uh, Fintech Week. Yeah, Yeah, saying, you know. IFGS, wasn't it? IFGS, yeah. yeah, Saying, you know, it's all, 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 you know, good to go. And yet we're in this situation where it's still going to be quite a long time before we see a regulatory framework because it's now left with the, um, or passed to the FCA, the PSR, the Bank of England to port all that in place. And if you look at the fact that in Europe, Mika is is nearer to a final um, legislative text. We are in that area um, lagging behind the curve a little bit. Yeah, that's a very important point. The UK is falling behind Europe. That's uh, not what was advertised. Right. <laughs> <laughs> On this particular point, it's not general, let's be clear. No, I know, I know. I was, I was being naughty. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'll just add, add one thing to that, which is I don't think it's, it's counter... Uh, well, no, maybe it is. Well, probably slightly uh, a lot, uh, a separate point to, to what Alexa was saying. But you know, I think one of the interesting things that come out from a, from the regulatory space is that the FCA does see investing as an important access point for a broader uh, a, a set of people that have you know utilised investing before. Um, there was a, a, a consumer investments uh, consultation that came out fairly recently, um, which showed that the FCA wanted more people who were already holding ten thousand pounds in savings. Um, to increase their exposure to investing. Um, I think it was increasing, um, you know, by 2025, increasing the number of people holding £10,000 by 20% in investing. But I think the guardrails are important, those guardrails that they they set up. They're, you know, the FCA, like the sort of, the dichotomy I was talking about earlier about investing versus trading. It doesn't mean that getting more people into investing should be investing their life savings into crypto or GameStop or, or so on. It's that investing is a key part of, of growing your wealth. Um, but people don't know how to, you know, how to start investing. There's the very well advertised high risk, potentially high return uh, asset classes, but how to get to something, uh, get into something without a wealth manager, without, you know, someone uh, telling you what this European fund versus this tech fund versus this Asia fund uh, is. It's, it's quite hard for people to know. So I think the regulator does have a bit of a job on its hands, both in terms of, you know, getting this investing versus trading right in terms of the regulatory landscape, but also being able to um, nudge people in the right direction of, of, of investing with the appropriate education and guardrails in place. Definitely. It's not an easy job. We often talk about regulators on this show, and I always think regulators probably have one of the most difficult jobs and are probably among the least well-rewarded people in the industry. And they're um, pretty short-staffed as well. Yeah. Um, on the crypto side in, in particular, I think they've now got an interim head of head of crypto uh, in, in place. But um, yeah, no wonder those applications are taking so long at the moment. Indeed. All right. We're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we will be back very shortly. 
Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as 10 just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com forward slash insider. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So the EU claims that Apple is breaking competition law over contactless payments. This was reported in The Guardian and various other media. Um, European regulators have charged Apple with breaking competition law by limiting rivals' access to technology that is key to making contactless payment and unfairly benefiting its own Apple Pay service. The European Commission said that Apple sets the rules on its closed platform and expressed concern that it has been limiting access to technology called near-field communication, which rivals need for tap-and-go payments to be made in stores using mobile wallets. Margareth Vestager, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, sorry, um, the Commission's uh, Executive Vice President in charge of competition policy said, on a preliminary basis, we have found that Apple abused its dominant position. Apple could face fines worth up to 10% of its global revenues, which totaled $365 billion in 2021, if the charges are upheld. Um, I'm not sure this is completely news, because I think this has been going on for a while. But Elixir, it makes a lot of sense to come first to you on this. What do you think? Um, Well, I'd agree with you, Benjamin, actually. It's not exactly news. Apple uh, being... uh, looked at by various regulators for competition issues uh, has been ongoing for a while. Uh, the Dutch authority actually had concerns about the access to the NFC antenna in um, the iPhones uh, and carried out an investigation a couple of years ago. And it actually concluded that the activity of Apple was anti-discriminatory, but anti-discriminatory? discriminatory. Anti-competitive, yeah. Anti-competitive, <laughs> yes, sorry. Um but that that um, it couldn't take action because the current legislation wasn't actually fit for purpose. And then Apple have also um, had an investigation in Australia about NFC restrictions. And there, um, the I think it was the Australian Parliament actually said that it wasn't going to take action against Apple because it was not dissimilar to restrictions in other parts of the payment ecosystem, which I think was quite a quite an unusual outcome. Um, And Apple have also had various statements of objection by the Commission in the past couple of years. One is about the um, its terms and conditions for the App Store. Another is about the fees that it charges in the App Store after a complaint from Spotify. And I think it's really important to put this in the context of the fact that the European Union does have a payment sovereignty agenda. If you look at the European Commission's um, strategy on where it wants to go with payments, if you look at the push for the European Payments Initiative, if you consider the fact that they do not want to be reliant upon US payments firms, the the card firms, US big tech firms, uh, you look at the Digital Markets Act, then this is part of, it's his part and parcel of a strategy to consider how these firms actually operate within the European market. So is the surprise perhaps that the EU hasn't taken Apple to task sooner on this as much as that they're, they're picking it up now? Um, well, I think some of it will actually be remedied by the Digital Markets Act which mm-hmm. the Commission wants to bring in fairly rapidly. I think the timeline they're saying is is this October. Um, but I think, as we know, with even the, the CMA, our own competition authority, competition investigations take quite a long time. You know, they just do. There's a lot involved. And obviously, uh, there is a lot at stake. I, th- I mean, this has been ongoing now with Apple, I would say, for about three three years i think it's longer than that i remember banks complaining about this you know six or seven years ago you know when when um you know when the iphones first came out the banks were saying well we can't access the nfc 
you know, so when Apple was launching Apple Pay, um, you know, once it launched in the States, you know, lots of banks in Europe were hanging, hang on a minute, we can't do this because we don't have access to that part of the hardware. Um, I mean, I suppose I suppose to be fair to them, I remember reading an article uh, where you know, interviewing Vestager when she was uh, leading some fines against Google and looking at Google's infrastructure. And I think she, I remember her saying that you know, in order for them to, you know, they'd launched this investigation against Google, Google had responded and sent them. I think she talked about you know, terabytes and terabytes of data, <laughs> but then they, as a team, have to trawl through and investigate. So you know, I do think these are complicated cases and I do think it takes time and then by the time you've actually got the process in place set the fines up then you've probably got to go through courts and legal appeals so you've got to be confident that you can stand up to legal challenge from some of the wealthiest companies in the world you can probably afford some of the biggest legal teams in the world so yeah I think it's it's going to be slow moving without doubt but it feels like a a definite step up, I think, from where the EU were, you know, a decade ago. They feel that they're being much more active now, probably to the Lix's point around their their wider agenda in terms of the, the sovereignty of the EU as a whole. But um, yeah, obviously, it's easy to be critical. But I think we have to understand the scale of the challenge they have when they're taking these massive companies to task. This definitely just, as opposed to an Alexa's point, feels like a bit of a, a, a trend at the moment in relation to, to Apple. And there might be a reason why this has become, without being too, too cynical, why this has become news now. You know, at the end of, of last year, um, with the release of iOS 14, that was, uh, you know, really through kind of digital marketers into, into disarray. And again, you know, the, the main point was about a, Apple using its infrastructure to be, to basically enhance its competitive advantage uh, in, in marketing versus, versus everyone else. It, it, you know, that affects all tech players. Uh, this case uh, affects everyone within payments. Um, there's sort of a mounting trend of how many times and how many businesses and how many sectors Apple can sort of have a dominance over really, isn't there, uh, until it starts to actually become a problem. So, yeah, gathering moss. It's also really interesting the point you were making earlier, Karen, about, you know, the sort of understaffing of many regulators. And, and you know, to your point, Kate, you know, it's a lot it's a lot for even the European Commission to take on, you know, trying to um, take a- a- Apple to task. Nalixa, do, do you have a sense on where this might go? How, how serious do you think this is? Do you think, do you think Apple's in trouble here? Well, I'm sure that Apple takes it very seriously because, you know, if this pans out the way the European Commission sees it as being anti-competitive, then the fines are heavy. Um, but also with the with the Digital Markets Act on the horizon and, and Apple and the other fintechs having to open up access, that's surely going to have um, an impact on bottom line profits. But it's also going to mean that the data that these firms collect from their own users in these closed ecosystems is no longer going to be proprietary to them. And I think that that's what's going to be of concern to Apple and these other organizations going forward. And obviously, Apple is not actually resting on its laurels because Apple announced earlier this year that it was going to make the iPhone into a payment terminal. You know, so Apple, I think, is planning for the future besides what's going on in Europe. Um, you know, it is looking ahead to how we can enter the payments market more actively. Now, whether it's going to remain as a as a technology provider or actually need to become a regulated entity, I think, remains to be seen. It's very interesting because it kind of brings us back to the conversation we were having earlier about Stripe, which, of course, in, you know, much, in a much smaller area we were you know, speculating on is that starting to become not anti-competitive but, but sort of squashing competitors and here you know I suppose the big question is are there going to be any European rivals emerging anytime soon? Well the Epi example um, doesn't leave anybody with a positive feeling does it in how um, the European rivals could actually grow given how that initiative has had to scale back given that the European companies, you know, have a big question mark over how they would actually get a return on their funding for such an initiative. Okay, let's move on to our last uh, of the the stories we're going to cover in depth. 
This is that uh, Truist, uh, which is the American banking group that was formed uh, from the merger of BB&T and SunTrust banks, has acquired fintech startup Long Game in an effort to reach a younger demographic. Truist, which is now one of America's largest financial institutions, acquired Long Game, a 12-person fintech startup that has raised over $20 million in venture capital. Long Game lets users link their bank accounts to the app, set savings goals, and earn extra cash by playing casino-style lottery games. The San Francisco-based startup looks to drive bank customer engagement using prize-linked savings and casual gaming to motivate smart financial behaviours. Long Game has raised $20 million um, from investors such as Vestigo Ventures, Franklin Templeton, Thrive Capital, and Collaborative Fund. Um, As of January, uh, Truist, which is based in Charlotte, North Carolina, was the sixth largest banking group in the States with $488 billion in assets. Um, Do people want gamification of their financial services? There's always this sort of thing that young people like games and old people don't, which I never sure I believe. Um, But do do any people want you know want financial services to be a game, or is financial services just a big game? Is it all just gambling? (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully not. Um, No, I mean you always get concerned when you hear people getting excited about gamification because I think you know lots of people have talked about the need to differentiate between gamification and then the application of game theory through proper product design, and I think people get the two confused and people think you know gamification just adds some bells and whistles and some fun graphics around something that's not really a fundamentally different experience for your customers and it's suddenly going to be exciting and interesting versus actually if you take some of the things which make games interesting and engaging and think about how you might translate that through into your your experience and the products and services that you're offering I think that's a totally different uh, product design process um so yeah, I, I think gamification. As soon as you hear the word gamification, it, it sort of makes me get a bit get a bit stressed, intense. Like it just feels like it's people trying to convince themselves that something's going to be far more exciting than it actually is. But I suppose in contrast, you know, we do see that you know lottery elements in savings can be interesting. You know, we obviously have the um, you know, the establishment of the government-based premium bonds here in the UK, which are a huge mm-hmm. part of, of UK savings society. Um, we know that that is is successful, you know, but so lottery games in sa- and savings aren't new uh, and have a proven track record. But yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd love to get Karen's perspective. You know, where do you guys see gamification and savings? I thought this was a super interesting article um, for, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think that... The sort of more established, perhaps sort of old school financial institutions trying to do something radical or surprising and weird sometimes to engage uh, younger customers is 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 not new. I mean, in the wealth management space, um, we've seen AJ AJ Bell release their 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 Doddle um, uh, offering, which has got sort of a big red scary monster, um, uh, and with the the tagline "Investing isn't scary," which is. you know, what, what, one approach. Um, at Moneybox, we, you know, it's not that we have gamification necessarily, but we do have moments of celebration and engagement and coming back to this idea about getting people connected with their finances and trying to teach in a non-patronizing way, in a way that's, that's engaging. I think there is real merit in that. You know, for us, every time someone gets closer to buying a house, um, something happens in the app. You know, you might get some confetti or the roof goes onto your, the, the image of your house in, in the app. And I think that's kind of, kind of cool. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on gaming by any stretch of, of the imagination, but I do I think that some kind of engagement in a way that uh, a particular audience um, would you know, best receive information is is a good thing. Yes, I probably do. Um, do I think that incentives used correctly are, are a good thing for sort of similar reasons? Yeah, yes, I do. But I suppose you know, to your reaction of uh, you know gamification being um, a, a bit sort of nerve raising. Um, I suppose you've just got to be careful about what the motiv- what kind of motivation it in- encourages. Um, you've got not just the people developing um, the app, um, you know, and what those games might might involve, and sort of playing with people's actions, and in this case, their money. But also, you know, you've, without sort of being too cynical about VC-backed businesses or, or, or investor-driven businesses, um, there is obviously a rationale of why you want to um, motivate people to put more money somewhere. So, you, you know, I know we talked about um, regulation quite a lot on this uh, podcast. Uh, mainly because 
because uh, Nalixra and I are ex-lawyers in financial services, uh, which you, you, you probably didn't realise when you had us on the show. But, you know, I, I do wonder what the appropriate regulator or watchdog is for this kind of thing. The FCA is very, very likely not to have any kind of visibility over this kind of thing. You know, I remember uh, back at Cedars in, in, in 2013 where, you know, we started doing um, YouTube adverts. The FCA couldn't even use YouTube in, in the offices. Uh, you know, couldn't necessarily see the digital ads and so on. So that's the aspect I worry about is actually how do you temper the gamification, the incentivization um, to, to make sure that people don't take, um, you know, uh, scary actions. I think the thing that sort of hit me about that article was the word lottery. You know, I don't associate the word lottery with savings and savings behaviour. You know, that's what I couldn't reconcile. And I absolutely agree with everything Karen said about the right incentives, about education. But, and and this is probably my gut instinct to that article, is that I don't see how winning a lottery, except for the fact you have a sum of money that you can save, actually incentivizes to save. But are people rational? Because I mean, to, to the point Kate made earlier, in in the UK, you know, premium bonds. Effectively, there is a lottery element to that. You buy the premium bonds, and every now and then you win a prize. And for some people, that's really compelling. That's a, you know, that's a present that grandparents give to you know little Johnny. Um, <laughs> you know, if you talk to my mum, she'll rave forever about how excited she gets every time she receives like her premium bond envelope in the post and the excitement of opening it and seeing has she won has she not won so I, I do think yeah obviously to Karen's point it needs to be structured in the right way it needs to be sensible it needs to be fair but I, I do think there is a role for exploring different ways of creating rewards within the saving experience you know we've come from a period of time when interest rates have been pretty poor people haven't seen returns on their savings. Savings has been you know, relatively boring unless you've had the support of a sophistication to move your money into investments. So I do think there's an appetite for interacting with your savings in a way that could be a bit more exciting, um, but hopefully yeah, within the correct bounds. I'm, also, I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan of, of using game mechanics in financial services. Karen, you were making an excellent point earlier about education, about the need for investors to be educated and understand how different asset classes work and so on. And if you can use games or elements from games to help people understand that without necessarily having it putting their money at risk. Um, but if you can use games to educate people, I think that can be quite powerful. You know, we did some research uh, last year at 11FS trying to understand how investors and traders like to learn and like, like to understand. People generally don't like reading long blocks of text. They like watching videos, but they also are quite interested in using games to learn how investing strategies and trading strategies work. You know, give me a test portfolio and so on. So while this particular example may not be a brilliant one, I actually think there is a big place for using game mechanics to help educate people and to help them into sort of what can be quite dry subjects that are important and they need to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember there's a really great TED Talk, I think, by the CEO of Superhuman from a couple of years ago, I think from 2019 or something like that. And he talks about how they've broken down their product development into sort of five areas about, you know, think about goals, emotions, controls, toys, and flow. And I think that's kind of how they've approached understanding it. how can you build elements of your product and your experience to focus on all those those five things and that's how they've developed their product and I think it's really interesting so I would recommend checking that out if you're interested in game theory and I think ultimately again just coming back to the sort of regulatory um, component like as long as you're treating your customers fairly like the motivations for the right thing so for you to save the most money on invest you know in, in a sort of a diverse uh, portfolio of, of, of assets um for you to kind of be you know uh, the highest investor in crypto that week is probably not one that you'd want to gamify so i think the two have to sit along sit alongside each other yeah no you're, you're absolutely right you can't encourage the wrong behavior you've got to be encouraging the right behavior yeah okay Let's move on to the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week uh, that we don't have time to cover but still deserve a quick shout out. Kate, do you want to get us started? Yes, absolutely. So our first 
story here comes from CNBC and that's that buy now, pay later will soon affect your credit score in the UK. So starting on the 1st of June, Klarna will share data on whether Brits paid off a buy now, pay later loan in time to the credit bureaus TransUnion and Experian. Klarna said that customers' credit scores are expected to be impacted by the change in the next 12 to 18 months. The move will apply to the firm's pay-in-three and pay-in-thirty services, which allow customers to pay down their debt in three months or 30 days respectively without accruing interest. Buy now, pay later companies face a reckoning in the UK and other countries as regulators look to crack down on such services amid worries they are encouraging consumers, Gen Z and millennials in particular, to spend more than they can afford. The UK government is looking to bring in regulation for the buy now, pay later industry by 2023. So our own Guerra Kawana spoke to CNBC for this story. So let's hear what she had to say. So credit reporting is a double-edged sword in that it can be used to punish borrowers, but it can also be used to incentivize and reward healthy financial habits. A use case that pops to mind for me is uh, having Klarna users who are thin file uh, users, so immigrants and underbanked, uh, using it as a tool for credit building, so intentional credit building. So this would strengthen buy now, pay later's offering versus turning to high cost credit cards. Um, if it if it gives the customers a chance to improve their credit score via good repayment behavior, so Klarna really has a chance here to be the tide that rises all boats in proving that credit scoring can actually be a an incentivized and re- rewarded uh, uh, habit. It still isn't clear how Klarna will disclose this change to their customers. So will, is this something that will be buried in terms and conditions, uh, or will we see it pushed to the fore during the customer's checkout journey? Uh, there's a real opportunity here to lift the veil of confusion and, and lack of understanding around how buy now, pay later companies operate. So that's promoting good customer outcomes for those using it as an alternative to credit cards. So ultimately, if this move results in other firms following suit, and customers clearly understanding that they are borrowing money with buy now, pay later, then this is really, this could be a good thing. Um, So I 100% agree with Guerra that this move has the potential to have both positive and negative repercussions for customers. It can be really difficult for Gen Zs and millennials to build up credit scores if they don't want to use credit cards and they're renting. So this could be a great development, but the fact that this hasn't been there from day one in a sector that's now so well established means that there's going to be a huge need for significant re-education. And I'm a bit nervous about how successfully they're going to be able to do that given that they've moved ahead of wider government legislation. So people using multiple buy now, pay later providers could potentially be receiving mixed messages. So we'll need to keep a close eye on how they roll that out in the summer. So watch this space. Next up, GoCardless has appointed MasterCard and Vocalink executive as president. This was reported in Finextra. So direct-to-bank payments firm GoCardless has appointed MasterCard's Paul Stoddard as president. Stoddard brings experience from being named CEO of Vocalink after its acquisition by MasterCard. He was subsequently promoted to president of MasterCard's new payment platforms, which look to expand the card scheme's role in payments beyond cards to account-to-account payments. GoCardless will look to benefit from Stoddart's experience as it doubles down on account-to-account payments. Uh, the company plans to release its variable recurring payment feature shortly in the UK and expand Instant Bank Pay, its product for one-off payments, across Europe. We reached out to Paul Stoddart to ask what was the first thing on his to-do list. Hi, everyone, and uh, I'm super excited to join GoCardless as their new president. The opportunity for GoCardless is significant. Roughly 20% of electronic payments are carded today. That means 80% is the account-to-account market size. That's over $200 trillion of, of annual payment flow. The UK market itself um, is particularly interesting because of the introduction of real-time payment systems and SEPA Instant in Europe. And so from that strong base and from our experience of working with payment systems in a number of markets, we're in a strong position to develop new products and services that we can cross-sell to existing customers um, and bundle as part of our offering to new customers across those markets. Some of those that I'll mention include payment intelligence, which is helping to identify and protect fraud in the payments um, system, and also IBP, which is our new open banking-based payment offering. Uh, Obviously, that's going to be particularly attractive both in the UK and Europe, but will also roll out a number of other markets. And lastly, certainly not leastly, we this week announced 
our partnership with NatWest in the UK for the launch of VRP, Variable Recurring Payments. Um, and out of interest, you know, we actually undertook the first live Variable Recurring Payment in the UK in a sandbox with the OBIE in 2019. So there's a lot to do. I'm really excited about the challenges and the opportunities ahead. Uh, so watch this space. And I'm really looking forward to uh, variable recurring payments um, coming into the market. I think it's going to be really interesting development for payments and potentially really start bringing some of the sort of potential of open banking um, into into customers' lives and really shaking up the payment space. So I'm looking forward to seeing that happen. Back to you, Kate. Cool. Uh, and last up in this section, so Citigroup trader triggers European flash crash. So this comes from the Telegraph. Citigroup has admitted that its London trading desk was behind a flash crash that sent shares across Europe tumbling this week. A flash crash is an extremely sharp fall in asset prices and is often caused by a trading mistake. The Wall Street giant said one of its traders made a mistake inputting a transaction and that triggered a knee-jerk sell-off in Swedish stocks, wiping out as much as 300 billion euros or 251 pounds in a matter of minutes. The bank said it identified the error within minutes and corrected it, but the mistake will come as a fresh blow to City, which has spent years attempting to improve its financial controls. City is in talks with regulators and exchanges about Monday's incident, Bloomberg reported. Um, it's always scary to see the amount of damage that can be done by even the smallest mistake in this space. It really reinforces how manual and human a lot of the processes are that underpin our stock markets, which isn't isn't reassuring uh, and definitely far from ideal at a time of general economic uncertainty in the week that both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England have raised interest rates in effort to get inflation under control. So uh, not ideal, but it really does sound like the fact that it happened on a public holiday day in the UK. So a relatively quiet day for trading helped mitigate some of the damage. So I think the most important lesson for us to take away from this is that we should have more public holidays. I like that. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. And I have to admit, I'm a bit nervous about the story. Um, so this was reported in BBC News, which is that a Swiss banker put his strip club visits on expenses. Um, the former head of a Swiss bank has been sentenced to nearly four years in jail for charges including fraud. The court in Zurich heard that Pierrin Vincenz, 65, had used his company credit card to pay for strip clubs, Tinder dates, holidays and dinners. According to prosecutors, Vincennes and a former credit card company boss, Beat Stocker, had lined their pockets by taking over companies in which they had secretly accumulated stakes. Bills totaling nearly 200,000 Swiss francs, which is about $214,000 or £165,000, for strip club visits were put on company expenses as largely business-related, according to Reuters. A meal costing 700 Swiss francs with a woman he met on Tinder was reportedly described as a job interview. The judge found that Vincennes' many visits to strip clubs were not in the bank's interests, according to Swiss media. Um, where do we start? Do expense claims still get people riled up? Um, I, I don't really know what to say. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder, you know, many, 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 many moons ago, I used I used Tinder, I actually met my husband on Tinder. I'm starting to think that I, you know, wasn't, wasn't treated well enough. You know, obviously, if you're going to Tinder date, you should be expecting a... Have a you know, seven hundred pound meal. So obviously, I've I've been shortchanged there. But no, it's I mean it's disgraceful behaviour. Um, and I think, I think people get so riled up about these things because you know we think of these institutions as being full of hugely wealthy individuals who earn huge salaries. But you know, obviously, within every single organisation, there will be members of staff who support that organisation who earn salaries that are equivalent to the amount that these people are just throwing away on trivial things. So I think people get very angry because everyday people relate these amounts of money to things that will be very significant in their lives, you know, their whole annual salary, their ability to you know, provide for their families. So yeah, it's not, under, I think, you know, there was some some conversation about them having to move this from one court to like a town hall because there were so many people angry about it. So definitely, you know, maybe we thought that um, slagging off people in financial services was only reserved for the financial crash but no it's still appetite to call out bad behavior when we see it which is how it should be yeah i think you're right on that one i think that there's there's, there's probably a few elements to why it's just so out outrageous there's that elitism point the the point that the kind of the rich have access to abuse of, of other riches there's a whole thing about it being triggering in in a number of ways you know the underhandness that potentially went on in the in the financial crisis or did go on the financial crisis but also with the mp expense scandal there's the 
womanizing component of it as well, the deeply sexist in a sort of post-Me Too or near post-Me Too era. Um, and the whole thing just feels very depressing, really. You know, I feel I feel very depressed about the whole thing. This is still perhaps the norm in, in some sectors. He was 65, you know, could it, I mean, I'm too naive to think it might be a generational thing. Careful, careful yeah. with that one. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I do think attitudes change across generations, but yes. I shall be careful. And Elixir, um, I'll shut up. Uh, well, like you, I'm a little bit speechless. I think that everything that um, Karen has said about the situation, I would echo. I do wonder how much of this we are going to see going forward, given that the changes that we're seeing in society about attitudes towards this kind of situation, and given that for the past two years we've been in a very different work environment as well, and whether that will impact how... Uh, business expenses are supported going forward, shall we say? Fantastic. Let's hope so. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a little bit uh, more about you, uh, Nilixa? Uh, they can contact me via LinkedIn. That's where I'm readily available. Um, or they can just reach out to me by email or phone. Karen? Download the Moneybox app. And look out for a crowdfund launching uh, very shortly. <laughs> and Kate? Uh, yeah, I'm Kate Moody on LinkedIn and at K8Moody on Twitter. So yeah, nice to say hello. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. And thank you to all of you for listening. Please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much indeed and goodbye. Goodbye.